Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. And I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, welcoming you, as always, to tonight's broadcast and thanking you for tuning in for what promises to be an interesting episode here tonight as we go through the Friday night highlight routine of digging through the archives of CorbettReport.com to highlight some of the interviews and episodes and articles and videos that I've done over the past five years at the Corbett Report. So once again, if you're not making use of that resource there yet, I certainly hope you will go to CorbettReport.com and take advantage of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of free media there that's available for download. And uh, tonight we're going to be dipping into the archives to go over something that we've been going over now for a couple weeks here on the broadcast, but I think it's important to continue looking into, and not necessarily for the specifics of what we're talking about, but for the general point. Well, what am I talking about? I'm talking once again about this Breitbart situation that we've been taking a look at. And uh, for now, in the last couple of weeks, I've raised the possibility a couple of times that this certainly looks like it certainly could be some type of political assassination. And that's not said lightly, lightly, that's said advisedly, because we have a history of people with very important information suddenly ending up dead uh, in very mysterious circumstances. And it's something that I've gone over in my podcast many, many times before. And I have a series of my podcasts called Requiem for the Suicided. So I hope that you'll uh, either go and follow the links from today's episode, or perhaps um, maybe you just type that into your search engine of choice. But if you do, I hope you'll find some of the episodes I've done on this and some of the people who have been, well, suicided. That is to say, not committing suicide, but uh, set up to look like they commit suicide. And on that very long and growing list, we have people like Danny Casalero, who was the freelance journalist who was working on what he called the political conspiracy of the century. He called it the octopus. And in August of 91, he went to West Virginia to finish up some interviews for the book that he was working on. He said he had cracked the nut. He was ready to go. He just wanted to, to finalize some interviews. And lo and behold, there in his hotel room, he supposedly slit his own wrists and bled to death. And all of the notes for the book that he was working on, yeah, suddenly and mysteriously disappeared to who knows where. Or we have uh, Cop of the Year Terry Yakey for people who have uh, tuned into, of course, this broadcast before and heard about the uh, the filmmakers behind the, the uh, documentary on OKC and the OKC bombing and what really happened there. Of course, the, you'll probably know about Terrence Yakey and how he was one of the first cops on the scene in the Oklahoma City bombing that day and how he what he saw did not square up with what the public was being told. He ended up getting followed and uh, harassed uh, to the point where eventually when he had some documents that he was going to uh, to show to a friend of his... He ended up getting followed. The last thing we know is that he phoned someone saying that he was being followed and uh, he was going to try to shake them. And the next thing we we see, uh, he's dead in a field after having apparently butchered himself in the front of his car and then dragged his own body through a field over a fence two kilometers away to shoot himself in the back of the head. Or so the story goes. Uh, we have the DC madam, of course, who was running the uh, the high-priced call girl ring in Washington and pandering, of course, to the Washington political elite. And her clientele list included, supposedly, or at least according to uh, to Wayne Madsen and others, uh, some of the highest people in Washington, all the way up to even VP Dick Cheney. And DC Madam goes on record on radio to say, I will never kill myself. 
And lo and behold, a few weeks later, she ends up supposedly hanging herself after having renewed the uh, the lease on her apartment and after having um, said again on live radio that she would never do that. And uh, and don't worry about it. Don't worry your pretty little heads about it. Someone came out uh, just shortly thereafter to say, oh, she told me she was going to do this. Etc., etc., etc. So it just goes on and on. So tonight we're going to take a look at some of those examples of cases where, well, it just doesn't add up that these people supposedly killed themselves. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back on Corbett Report Radio. to Republic Broadcasting Friends. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday evening as we go over the Friday night highlights and look at some some of the work that I've done at CorbettReport.com over the years on a number of different issues. Tonight we're focusing on the idea of political assassinations and the quote-unquote suicided, those unfortunate souls who had too much information about something that was too sensitive and ended up committing quote-unquote suicide in an elaborate manner that could not possibly have been suicide, and unfortunately there are are all too many examples of that out there, and I've gone over a lot of them in my podcast in the past, including Sergeant Terrence Yakey, who we mentioned there before the break, who was a, a member of the Oklahoma City Police Force, a sergeant and uh, a decorated uh, police uh, sergeant, someone who was quite looked up to in the Oklahoma City Police Department. So, just to get some more background on Yakey and his case, I'll read from an excellent article that's up at APFN.org. Again, you can follow the link from the show notes. And it says, quote, only a couple of hours into the rescue at the Oklahoma City building, uh, Sergeant Terrence Yakey became painfully aware of something disturbing. Did he somehow figure out that the building had been blown from the inside and the, the news reports were baloney? Did he overhear a strange conversation from some of the many ATF agents who were on the scene sooner than they should have been? Whatever it was, Terry was upset. He called his wife that morning, crying. The big old teddy bear of a guy was crying and saying repeatedly, It's not true. It's not what they are saying. It didn't happen that way. Terry Yakey may have been the first to discover the sham. He ran back and forth into that concrete mess of bricks and mortar all day long and continued beyond exhaustion far into the night. He scraped and crawled and dug until his fingers bled and then kept digging some more. In a cadre of heroes that day, Terry's performance was outstanding. On May 11th, the following year, he was scheduled to receive the Medal of Valor from the Oklahoma City Police Department. He never got it. He was murdered on May 8th, 1996 in the country, two and a half miles west of the El Reno Penitentiary. End quote. Well, to go over more about Terrence Yakey and the, uh, the, all the grisly details of his untimely demise... Back in 2010, I talked to James Lane, who's been a guest and even a co-host on this program before, and is, of course, one of the documentary filmmakers behind A Noble Lie, an excellent documentary on the OKC bombing that goes through the Yankee story and so much more besides. So once again, I'll commend A Noble Lie to all of you out there. But back in 2010, I had the chance to talk to James Lane about Sergeant Terrence Yankee, his heroics that day, his life, his legacy, and, unfortunately, the details of his all-too-untimely death. 
Well, what's interesting about the story is that Terry was actually in the process of achieving a, a lot of his major life goals. You know, he was scheduled to be interviewed for the final time with the FBI in Irving, Texas. Um, he was also planning on moving to Dallas to work for the FBI down there and live with his sister. He was a you know Gulf War one veteran who had uh, been a in the military police there in Saudi Arabia and served seven years in the OCPD, and he had just been promoted to sergeant. Uh, you know, so many of these things that you know he had reconciled with his wife, and he had everything to live for. You know, he had just received the key to the city of El Reno, Oklahoma, and whenever it came out that they said his death was a suicide, I think one of the, the things that really stand out the most is that there was no investigation. You know, they found. No, I guess no reason to conduct any type of interviews with his friends or family to see if he was even suicidal at all. And they say that he committed suicide because he was living emotional pain because he couldn't do more to help the, the people of the Oklahoma City bombing and that he had survivor's guilt. But that's not founded on anything. That's not founded on any of the families or friends' information. Nobody even asked them. And there was no psychiatric assessment or anything that backs that up, was there? Absolutely not, no. And as you said, Terry was one of the first to arrive on the scene uh, the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And this is one of the major points that really disproves that ANFO was used as the primary explosive uh, in, the, in the Oklahoma City bombing attack. Because if ANFO, the ammonium nitrate fuel oil mixture, was used, it would create a cloud of nitric gas – Every time that this has been used in the past, uh, we have, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of a bombing in Madison, Wisconsin. And the initial first responders that showed up, 23 of them went to the emergency room for seared lungs. They were overcome, and the rest of the people going in had to wear breathing equipment. Well, we didn't see any of that that day. Terry worked himself beyond exhaustion. You know, he was running in, he was digging people out of the rubble. One of the first people he pulled out was Tom Hall, and it said that he, you know, he, this this giant man Terry Yakey, you know, hauls him out and sets him down gentle as a baby, and with this, you know, we've got a question. You know, what was the primary explosive used? You know, I mean, if if he's able to run in and do that, I mean, it's obvious that there wasn't a nitric gas cloud. Exactly right. So that may have been what uh, Yiki was referring to when he said that the bombing was not what it was being portrayed to be. But uh, let's flesh this out a little bit for people and, and t- go through that story of the the day of the bombing and then and then the days and weeks afterwards and, and what exactly happened to him as he started to try to expose the truth. Absolutely, it, it was. It had become known, you know, with his family that he, what he saw that day did not fit the official story he had wrote a very lengthy detailed report and his superiors sent it back and told him you know to cut that down and he received harassment within the police department because he would not go along with the official story but he, he wouldn't tell his family specifically what it was and you know the only thing that we can do as guess on that is that he was trying to protect them i mean all the way up into his death you know, he he wouldn't tell them exactly what was going on. They knew that the night before, he he was feeling sick, and he was staying at his sister's house. But she said he was in no way, you know, wanting to, to kill himself. He was going to meet someone that morning. He had gone to a restaurant in El Reno, 
and uh, where, where or he was on his way to the restaurant, you know, you know where any you know he never never made it to his meeting. Um, they found his body um, later that evening, and the way that they say that he died was that he had cut his wrists and cut his neck, causing him to nearly bleed to death. All right, then then somehow after bleeding out in the car, and this this is you know uh, very gory, but I mean the, the blood was all the way in the back window seal. You know, I mean it, it, it had gone everywhere. Well. After he get, bleeds to that extent, he, we're supposed to believe that he climbs over a barbed wire fence, has the state of mind to lock his car also, uh, climbed over a barbed wire fence, and then walked a mile and a quarter before sitting down at a tree and then shooting himself in the head at a downward angle. But for a long time after they found his body, they couldn't even find the weapon. The, the, uh, as soon as the FBI comes out and they land on the scene, all of a sudden, bam, there's the weapon. And it's you know it's very far away from him, and no testing was done, you know no ballistics, no fingerprints, and you know no no actual investigation. It was just deemed a suicide immediately. Are there any actual photos of the uh, the scene itself? No, but we have spoken with Terry's mother, and she investigated the or she inspected his body before he was buried. And, you know, they, they tried to, to, you know, resist that. And she said, you know, I've seen him. I brought him into this world. You know, she wanted to see what had happened. And she noticed that in his wounds on his arm, was the grass was, was actually in there. So uh, there is some suspicion that the marks on his neck could be could be a rope. But then there's also, you know, we talked to some medical examiners, and they think that it could be. Um, it's a type of the way that the body deteriorates, but the wounds in his neck were were very deep, you know. And there, so I mean, she looked him over, and the the where the bullet had gone in was in the top right side of his head, and then came out at the bottom left side of his jaw because they had put. Um, the wax on there to rebuild his his face. So she was very meticulous as she went over and inspected his body. So let's let's break that down. So this is a man that has uh, recently received the keys to El Reno, Oklahoma. This is a man that uh, is about to take up a post with the FBI in Dallas, Texas. This is a man who has recently reunited with his estranged wife. And this is a man who is on his way to a meeting with somebody else, uh, presumably about this case specifically, the Oklahoma City bombing case. And he ends up committing suicide in this fashion, supposedly. Right. Right, with no investigation, and when the family talks to him about this, and I say, "Oh no, he, you know, he wasn't suicidal. He was, you know, he was murdered." They were told that they watched too much TV, that you know, that they're that they're crazy. I mean, the, both of his sisters described the same treatment, and then his mother, the the way that the Oklahoma City the police department treated his mother was horrible. She was getting in the car when they found out when they found Terry's body, and this was around 10 p.m. Well, one of the police officers. Uh, Molinex tells her to wait there that she shouldn't drive and that someone would come and get her. Well, she waited until 1 in the morning before she finally just gave up, and no one ever came to get her. They just left her sitting there. And I understand that uh, that Sergeant Yankee was decorated posthumously with an award for valor. Yes, he, he was. Uh, he received the Medal of, Medal of Valor, but uh, this was um, given to his mother at the graveside uh, burial ceremony. Um, this was, the, I believe, it was the 
day, just a few days after uh, that he was set to receive that. And when when they announced it at the official ceremony, uh, apparently he just got a you know a big standing ovation. I mean, there was there was some intimidation going on within the force, but you know a lot of people recognized him for the hero that he was to to go in you know to that to that building and pull out so many people and be able to save them. Well, just incredible. So, so playing forward from that day, what what did the family experience in their attempts to find out more about this death? It was all intimidation, and like, like I said, they were just told them that they watched too much TV and they were crazy. They weren't able to get anything, any you know, any traction on this. They would talk to attorneys. They were told that they, you know, no attorneys would touch it. And apparently, there is even a saying. Uh, whenever people, you know, in the Oklahoma City Police Department get involved in something that they need to ignore, it's told, you know, it's told you don't want to end up like Terry Hickey. To the broadcast, friends, this is Corbett Report Radio, and you're tuned into republicbroadcasting.org here on this Friday evening as we are going over the cases, the far too many cases of political assassinations for all intents and purposes, people who had politically damaging and explosive information who unfortunately kept the lid on that information for just a little too long and unfortunately ended up committing quote-unquote suicide in a number of very strange circumstances And obviously, we can look for the parallels to what happened with Andrew Breitbart and his now infamous quote, uh, at least among some people who are actually paying attention, his infamous quote, wait until they see what happens on March 1st. And lo and behold, he keels over dead on the sidewalk on March 1st. So we are still taking a look at that situation. And of course, information is still coming out on a daily basis. And it's still too early to say what happened or didn't happen with Andrew Breitbart. But it is not too early to start making pronouncements on some of these other cases that we're covering tonight. Obviously, there before the break, we're talking about Cop of the Year Sergeant Terrence Yakey of the Oklahoma City Police Force, one of the, uh, if not the first cop on the scene to the OKC bombing back in 1995. And what he saw did not square with the official reports. And when he tried to go public with that information, he ended up dead in a field with a gunshot wound to his head that the uh, coroner ruled was self-inflicted, along with all the other cuts and bruises on his body. And again, as I say, this is not just a one-off thing or something that we can point to one or two people. There are literally more than I can possibly cover even on my podcast. But I've done my best to try to cover some of these cases in the past, so I will now refer you to another, uh, I think, an important episode of my podcast, episode 117, Requiem for the Suicided Gary Webb, which aired first back on 14th of February 2010, and goes over the story of Gary Webb, who I'm sure many of you out there will be familiar with. But for those who aren't, Gary Webb was a journalist for the San Jose Mercury News, who began working on a groundbreaking uh, case in the mid-1990s called Dark Alliance. And it was a series of reports uh, that really spanned decades and and took a look at the the big history behind CIA drug trafficking, CIA-sponsored or CIA-allowed or CIA-enabled drug trafficking. 
looking at the links between some of these drug kingpins who have been involved in the smuggling of cocaine into the country and how they were related to the CIA. And uh, and he was doing remarkable work on that and really t- tying the uh, crack ep- uh, cocaine epidemic of the 1980s into the CIA drug smuggling of the 1980s. And for that reason, he attracted the wrong kind of attention and unfortunately ended up committing suicide, quote-unquote, once again, with two gunshots to the back of the head, and we're asked to believe that was suicide. Well, absolutely, I think there are good reasons to question why, and at least one of them comes from one of the articles that I read out on that podcast, and I'll read for you again here. It's called, Was Gary Webb Suicided to Kill New Book?, and it's by Charlene Fassa, and she writes, quote, Before all articles, legitimate questions, and informed speculation critical of Webb's alleged confirmed suicide are automatically tossed into the memory hole or are destined to endlessly travel through the conspiracy belt, I have some new and important revelations that need to be factored into the Gary Webb death equation, including information that he was working on a new book that he would soon finish. And what would people think about Gary Webb's official airtight confirmed suicide pronouncement if they were to read an email containing a recollected conversation between John Rowland and Gary Webb about this very subject? The possibility of Webb's being suicided, where Webb confirms that if he's found dead, it would never be a suicide. End quote. Again, you can go and read through that, and you can read through the emails that, that's referred to in that article. I highly recommend it. It does very, I think, tellingly raise the question of what would happen if he ended up dead. And that's unfortunately something that a lot of these people in these positions do know about. And yet, for whatever reason, they bite their tongue, they hold on to what they have for just that little bit too long, and they let too many people know about what beans they have to spill and they end up, well, unfortunately, getting getting killed. And there's no there's no nice way to put that. There's no uh, nice bow to put on that. Unfortunately, we're talking about human lives and how they are snuffed out um, with really no compunction at all if they have information that would be threatening to the system itself. And once again, as we saw with Terence Yakey, so we see with Gary Webb, so we see with the DC Madam. So we see with David Kelly, so we see with so many others who have held on to information that was too important for too long. And really, I mean, once again, the uh, the point of all of this is to say that if you do have information that's important, you have to come out and come out completely all at once, without any forewarning, without any foreshadowing, without any building it up with CPAC speeches like Andrew Breitbart was allegedly or was uh, demonstrably doing, but... Again, we don't know exactly what happened with Breitbart yet, but it looks like it has all the hallmarks of this type of political assassination. And unfortunately, once again, this is an all-too-real reality. So we will continue going through this. Once again, I do recommend CorbettReport.com as a good source on at least a starting point for your research on some of these characters. And once again, there is documentation in all of the episodes that I do for my podcast, just like there's documentation in all of the radio shows. So if you're interested in listening to the podcast, you can go directly there, CorbettReport.com slash podcasts with an S, podcasts, um, and that will take you directly there. You can look, we're now up to episode 220, and uh, the next one is being released in the next uh, 24 hours, so I hope that you will take advantage of this information. Once again, I uh, I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this for five years, and I, I certainly think I've amassed quite a bit of information, and it is there to be used as a resource. I'm not telling you what to think or how to think, I'm just trying to provide sources so that you can go and research it more for yourself. On that note, we'll be right back right after these messages. Laughing in the 
All right, friends, we're back here on Fort Report Radio here on this Friday evening on republicbroadcasting.org, and we are going over all of the information that I've accrued, or at least some of it that I've accrued over the years at corporatereport.com, talking about the suicided, the cases of the people who knew too much and unfortunately were were killed for that, or at least all the evidence seems to stack up that way. We've talked about Terry Yakey and Gary Webb, and we've mentioned people like Danny Casalero and the DC Madam and so many others. And in that regard, I think one that looms large at the top of any such list would be Dr. David Kelly, the UN weapons inspector and the microbiologist who was found dead on Harrowdown Hill on July 18th, 2003. After having sent messages similar to the ones that we just talked about with Gary Webb there before the break, saying uh, that there were dark forces at play and that he would be found dead in the woods. Well, lo and behold, he's found dead in the woods, and the people who think that there are dark forces at play are kooky conspiracy theorists, according to the BBC and others who have done work on this uh on this case, trying to uh, dispel any notion that there could have been anything untoward in this death. And all of the various pieces of this puzzle just do not fit up in any way, shape, or form. And that's something that I've gone over a couple of times now, not only in my podcast, episode 192, released in June of 2011, Requiem for the Suicided, Dr. David Kelly, but I also had a GRTV backgrounder video uh, that went up in, uh, I believe, in October of, uh, of last year, going over all of this information about David Kelly and the uh, the paramedics at the scene that have their concerns that the body was moved. Um, the detective who found the, uh, the the body believes there was too uh, there was not enough blood at the scene to really account for uh, David Kelly having bled to death. Uh, there was the, the clinical pharmacologist who says that it isn't possible for Dr. Kelly to have swallowed more than a safe dose of two coproximal tablets because there was so little of that drug found in his system after the case. There was a, a, a mysterious, bizarre story about a helicopter that uh, the flight logs of which have been come out uh, have come out since then, but have been heavily redacted, showing that there was a helicopter that was dispatched to the scene of Dr. Kelly's death shortly after his body was found, and uh, the details of that flight, who was on it, and uh, what they did there. They were only there at the scene for a few minutes and uh, apparently dropped someone off. That has never been explained. No one knows who was on that flight. Uh, there was the the case of the police investigation having been uh, opened before Dr. Kelly was even reported missing. Uh, th there are so many different aspects to this that are so bizarre that in any other case, if this was just a regular person, there would be absolutely no question that there would be an investigation, a proper investigation, but not in the case of Dr. David Kelly. So last year I interviewed Dr. David Halpin, one of the doctors who has been trying, fighting for years to open a new inquest into Dr. Kelly's death and to try to find a little bit more information about what really happened. Although, unfortunately, every such request has been turned down and refuted at every angle. And we talked last year, shortly after Attorney General of the UK shot down yet another attempt to, to open an inquest into Dr. David Kelly's uh, death. And the doctors once again launched a petition for a judicial review of that decision, trying to get the case opened once again. So once again, this is Dr. David Halpin on the death of David Kelly. Well, you know that people mostly know that he was um, a weapons uh, expert. In fact, our top knows one in this country. He was a bacteriologist by um, learning, uh, by expertise. 
and um, he had the highest security clearance in our system here and in the CIA, I'm told. Um, he was alleged to have given, um, to have said that the government had sexed up the so-called dossier that led to the Iraq war. One of the, was the main excuse, the main pretext for it. And uh, this happened on, in the Today program in May, I think it was, of 2003. A furore um, exploded about six weeks later, uh, much involving the BBC. And uh, the poor man was um, hunted, to be frank about it. And um, he went out for a walk from his home, a little village in Oxfordshire, Southmore, and um, three o'clock uh, on, on the 17th of August, and um, his wife reported him missing to the police just before midnight on that same day, a rather extraordinary delay in itself. He was found the next day at about uh, nine, nine o'clock in the morning by two lay searchers with a dog. And um, there's all sorts of things that one can say about this. The lady who found him, found him sitting slumped against a tree. Those are her words. Um, the police attended. They were already searching for him as well. Anyway, um, he was examined at the site by Dr. Nicholas Hunt, the forensic pathologist, and who later examined his body at the Radcliffe Infirmary that Friday evening from 9 o'clock until midnight. The extraordinary thing is, and this is one of the most, I would say, evil things about this whole business, um, was that Lord Falconer, who was the um, Lord Chancellor, he had another post as well to do with, um, I'll just forget this for a moment, but the Lord Falconer uh, had arranged that same day, whilst Kelly's body was still cooling, for an ad hoc inquiry to be set up and chaired by Lord Hutton. He agreed that day, Lord Hutton. So we have this extraordinary alacrity. And it, was, it is obvious that uh, the intention was to contain the inquiry in the way that they wanted. And that has typified the whole process since. Um, I can remember, I think, uh, thinking that it was fishy, but I don't think I spent too much time thinking about it. And uh, But I thought about it more when I heard what the Hutton Inquiry had uh, pretty well decided. They were yet to announce a formal, um, the formal findings, the verdict. But uh, we learned that he had died, Dr. Kelly, from... A hemorrhage uh, due to transaction that's cutting straight across the ulnar artery in the left wrist. And uh, he also died of taking coproximal tablets, uh, which his wife also took for her arthritis. Anyway, after about two months thinking about it and not wishing to disturb the family feelings, I wrote to the Morning Star newspaper the so-called left-wing paper, on the 15th of December it was published. In that letter, I said that I could not accept that there would be such exsanguination, such bleeding out from this uh, small artery of matchstick thickness, I use that term, um, that um, so much bleeding out that death would ensue. I also went on to say that I found it preposterous uh, to accept that a man of his scientific standing would choose such uncertain methods who wish to kill himself. That drew me into a group then of just two doctors and a layperson who acted as liaison officer, and we've battled ever since then, James. In January 2004, we wrote letters to The Guardian, the good letters, 
We pleaded with the uh, coroner, but who were not proper interested persons, to use the term, uh, for a proper inquest. There had not been a proper inquest. And we've been battling over the eight years since then. I'm now in the position of being the sole litigant because my uh, medical colleagues, for several reasons, mostly family reasons, could not stand the threat of costs being awarded against us. So the process is in... Um, it's going, it's going ahead. As you, you've rightly said that Mr. Grieve, the Attorney General, refused our plea uh, put in by lawyers and very substantially um, uh, grounded. Uh, he refused our plea on the 9th of June uh, of this year. And uh, almost at the last minute, uh, this um, plea to judicially review the Attorney General's decision is now in process. So uh, we're now waiting. I've just seen the defense document from two barristers who've been instructed by the Treasury solicitors. I haven't had time to read it fully. It came on Friday. And I'm waiting to hear from our solicitors with us, uh, Jennifer McDermott in particular, and uh, possibly from the QC, John Cooper. So within the next few weeks, there will be some hearing by one judge. Either he will have an oral hearing which is less usual, where you will look at the papers and decide whether we have permission to go ahead to make a proper plea for a judicial review. I've tried my best to, to, to shorten this. Right. Well, uh, let's back up for a moment. And for those of us who, who might not be in the British uh, political system, can you explain to us about the inquiries, about uh, inquests, and about the difference between the two and why it's important to have an, a proper inquest into the death of David Cameron? Right. Yes, it's a good question, if I might say so. Um, an inquest is held by a coroner. It's an, an ancient um, position. It, in fact, relates to the crown. Goes back to I think the 13th century, uh, but any unnatural death in this country, in England, it's different in Scotland. Any unnatural death is meant to come before a coroner. They don't always hold an inquest if they are satisfied about the uh, the um, uh, the attachments to the case. Um, a coroner, if he hears evidence, will hear it under oath. And sometimes in more complex cases or, or cases where there is, should we say, greater importance, a, a jury will be called. And in this case, in ordinary circumstances, should we say, if it was, if it applied ordinary rules, this man's death would have been heard by a coroner in front of a jury. Now, an inquest was opened here. But the coroner, Mr. Nicholas Gardner, was instructed by our, by my Lord Falconer to um, adjourn the inquest early on. In fact, it was adjourned on the 13th of August, about three weeks after the death of Dr. Kelly. And the inquest was subsumed, was taken within the Hutton Inquiry. The Hutton Inquiry, as I say, was ad hoc. Um, in other words, there were no, should we say, there were no set rules. The Inquiries Act does give some guidance, I believe. But there was no oath taken, uh, witnesses could not be subpoenaed, and there was, um, I would say, an informality about the whole thing. There's another important thing, is that in uh, the middle of August, Lord Falconer inserted um, Section 17A from the Coroner's Act of 1988, and this allowed greater powers to, the, to, to Lord Hutton and his inquiry in regard to the original inquest, it meant they had more lien, shall we say, over the um, over the 
essential uh, duty of carrying out an inquest. So Gardner was very much, in fact, in the hands, I would say, of Lord, of, uh, Lord Hutton in his inquiry. There weren't many other. There, 17A, as applied, has only been applied to multiple deaths. This is of, of, of importance. There was a trawler called Gaul, which went, off, went down off the North Cape of Norway, and they had two inquiries into that. They were done under Section 17A when several uh, fishermen, sailors, uh, were drowned. There was also a train crash, again involving multiple deaths. And the idea of 17A was to allow, uh, when there was one common cause, there would be one inquiry focusing on all those deaths, obviously to consider efficiency and also to consider um, the relatives of those poor people who died. So, so to be sure that I have the distinction straight, uh, coroner's inquest would be able to subpoena witnesses, would be able to compel them to testify under oath, and yes. would have a jury adjudicating on the case. If they wished, yes. I see. So, it's, uh, so it is certainly important, especially in uh, a situation where there, there are details that are as, as suspect as those involved in Dr. David Kelly's death, which, of course, is politically, yes. a politically sensitive uh, topic. So, so tell us about some of the documents that you've submitted in your judicial review and why you think uh, Attorney General Dominic Grieve made an improper decision when he ruled that there should not be a coroner's inquiry, inquest. Um, I don't, don't know where to start, James, but mind just quickly add that my wife has reminded me that I said the 18th of August, 17th of August for Dr. Kelly's death, it was 17th of July 2003, all right? And he was found the next day on the 18th of July, all right? Um, some of the documents, well, some of the evidence that I've seen has not yet been revealed, and it is, to be quite frank, explicit. Um, but it's inappropriate for that to be revealed at the moment. Um, if I can consider just I'll look at one thing uh, there were Dr. Allen was a toxicologist at the Hutton Inquiry he'd examined the, the blood um, the blood samples taken by Dr. Hunt at the post-mortem in Radcliffe Infirmary Dr. Hunt took five blood samples only one of those was labelled as to origin that's the first problem uh, you would, if you were a scientist, wish to make quite certain that the origin of each sample was labelled on the bottle. Uh, the reason being is that there, well, there are several reasons actually, but one particular one is that if the poison's been ingested, the uh, poison can diffuse across the stomach into the great vessels. So if you took a blood sample, say, from the aorta or from the vena cava alongside the stomach or close to the stomach, you might find high levels from that. So it's one very good reason for making sure the origin of the samples is noted. Five blood samples. Dr. Allen at the Hutton Inquiry referred to four blood samples. One had flown away. He discussed the only blood sample that he described as containing the two components of, of, of the coproximal, that is the paracetamol, or the dextropropoxyphene, which is an opiate. It's a, a, a morphine-like uh, um, synthetic compound. The only sample that he described as containing these was sample NCH47. The dextropropoxyphene level in that, the paracetamol level was, I think, fairly high, actually. Uh, 
The Jake's proxy level was reported as being one microgram uh, per 100 ml. I can't remember the exact levels now. I'm getting tired. But um, <clears throat> uh, he said in, his, uh, in the gentle cross-examination that the two papers that he knew that described death from dextropoxyphene described levels in the uh, in the dead persons about threefold or fourfold higher than the level he was describing in Dr. in Dr. Kelly. All right. Now, he was then asked, in fact, by the um, the uh, particular QC, what about other blood samples? He described the numbers, or he told the numbers of the other three. Two were, were passed pass by. Then he got on to NCH44. Origin, again, not stated. There was no, he described no dextropoxyphene, or in that sample. Now, tell me how you can say that, that Dr. Kelly died of an overdose if one of the samples can, was said was not, uh, we were not told it contained either of these two compounds. Now, there was some finding, there was a finding of in the vitreous humor. They examined that. It's a rather sort of, it, it ascends more slowly uh, after ingestion of a poison. So there was some backup from that. But I focused just now by just focusing on the blood samples and the, the, uh, the testing, or certainly the description, is extraordinary. Welcome back. This is Corbett Report Radio, and you're tuned into the final minutes of the broadcast here on this Friday night edition here on republicbroadcasting.org. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been taking a look at the tragic cases of the people who knew too much and ended up paying the fi- the ultimate price for that information. And once again, this is information that is not to be taken lightly. This is not a, a rash call to judgment that we should make without having heard out the facts of all the case, which is why I once again exhort you to go and follow the links from today's episode from CorbettReport.com slash radio so that you can start to research more into these cases for yourself. But just on the note of Dr. David Kelly, who we were talking about in the last segment there, unfortunately, the uh, the case of Dr. Halpin to get that decision of the Attorney General uh, Dominic Grieve overturned and to really open an inquest into the death of Dr. David Kelly did fail. It ultimately failed uh, in December of last year. So taking our cue from the BBC, Dr. David Kelly inquest ruling challenge fails, quote, a bid to bring a high court challenge over the attorney general's refusal to give his consent for a new inquest into the death of Dr. David Kelly has failed. Government scientist Dr. Kelly was found dead in July 2003, aged 59, after he was exposed as the source of a BBC story about Iraq intelligence. Campaigners had sought a judicial review of the decision, which backed a finding that Dr. Kelly killed himself. The Attorney General said in June the evidence for this was overwhelming. Dominique Grieve concluded there was no possibility that an inquest would reach any verdict other than suicide, the conclusion drawn from an inquiry into the death by Lord Hutton, and he rejected claims of a cover-up. 
But a group of doctors said Hutton's ruling was unsafe, claiming the evidence did not point to suicide. They mounted a long-running campaign for the inquest to be reopened. On Monday, Mr. Justice Nickel refused permission for one of the group, retired orthopedic surgeon David Halpin, to seek a ruling that the Attorney General had acted unlawfully and irrationally. And quote, I will let you read the rest of that a very unfortunate article for yourself, but there you go. It's definitely not going to be an easy battle against the people who are covering up this type of monumental information, not only in the Dr. Kelly case, but of course in the case of the DC Madam and Gary Webb and Terrence Yakey and all of the others who unfortunately have ended up paying the ultimate price for the information they knew. And this is not meant to be disheartening, quite the contrary. This is meant to reinvigorate all of the people out there to really understand how important the information that we're bringing you here on Corbett Report Radio every night and in all of the other alternative media, how important this information is and the fact that this this is the type of information that really does get people killed. So it's so important to help to spread this information and to make sure that everybody gets to understand the types of things that these people risk their lives to bring to us. And really, we do stand on the shoulders of giants in so many ways. So once again, just in the final moments here, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in for this week's broadcast of Corbett Report Radio. I have some more excellent guests lined up for next week, so I hope you'll stay tuned for that. I also have a report live from a demonstration that's taking place in Osaka next uh, this Sunday that uh, is going to be a 10,000-person march against nuclear power. It's going to be very interesting, so I'm going to try to get that report up as soon as possible Sunday night or Monday morning for you guys in North America. And, uh, and so look forward to that. And once again, that trip is being sponsored by the people out there who listen to this podcast and broadcast and my videos and interviews and who have donated or uh, bought my DVD or signed up to be subscribers. All of that support, greatly appreciated. Truly, this media is brought to you by you. Once again, you can help support my work at CorbettReport.com support. And on that note, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, and I'll see you next week.